Welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I will be talking to Jacob Levine, author of Cannabis Discourse, Facts and Opinions in Context. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Thank you. Hello, Sarah. Can you go ahead and tell us about yourself? Yes, definitely. So, uh, as you said, my name is Jacob Levine. I am... um, as you will hear from my weird accent, I come from Australia, Poland, Sweden. I also lived in Spain. So, uh, yeah, and I wrote this book about uh, cannabis, which I'll be glad to discuss with you today. Yeah, how did this book come about for you? All right, so um, first, um, when I was a bit younger, <laughs> you know, I got into um, using recreational cannabis and after a while I realized that it helped me a lot with my Crohn's disease um, so that is sort of how I started getting more interested into the facts in the facts of cannabis and um, everything that this plant can do uh, medicinally and I started um, Two years ago, I started writing for a cannabis uh, company called Zamnesia.com, and they told me to uh, write articles and blogs about cannabis and uh, everything surrounding it. So like uh, the legal status of cannabis, um, even how to roll joints, uh, um, different strains of cannabis, and um, yeah, basically all the different um, topics surrounding it. And it was a very interesting moment for me because I never really wrote professionally before. Um, I just, um, I never worked with writing before. So there was a lot of learning involved and there a lot of mistakes that I was making. But um, after a while, I got a hold of it. So um, yeah, that's I was doing that for an entire year. I wrote like 50 blogs, articles, plenty of uh, strain descriptions. And then I decided that um, since I've gathered so much knowledge um, uh, surrounding cannabis from all the blogs and articles I've read and written, that um, I just decided to share this uh, knowledge um, in a way that I wanted to express it. So... um, when you write blogs and articles for other companies, obviously they can edit it at any point. So I just started writing as a guest writer, which um, I didn't want to put my name under it because um, obviously the facts can, basically the editor can change all the different facts. So um, whenever they feel like it. So I just uh, decided to write my own book and um, yeah, write it exactly how I want it. So when I started writing the book, I decided to just write about exactly why cannabis needs to be legalized around the world. So I thought that was a great idea. So I started writing the book saying how, why it is, um, why it needs to be legalized from all different perspectives, like from the pharmacological perspective, like it, um, it's an amazing medicine. Uh, there are so many incarceration. Um, the incarcer- inca- sorry, I can't spell the word. In- incarceration rates are very high in terms of um, people getting uh, going to prison for drugs, which I think is a waste of um, our taxes and life, really. So, um, 
So I started writing from all these different perspectives. And then I realized that my opinions were quite preachy, as in like, um, I was telling people why it is right. And if you're wrong, you're wrong, <laughs> you know, uh, or if you have a different opinion than me, then you're wrong. So then I realized that I'm not really an expert in medicine. Like I am not a scientist, so I cannot speak exactly um, how cannabis affects you from a medicinal standpoint. I'm also not an expert in incarceration rates. I'm not an expert in many different areas. So I thought to myself, um, maybe that's not <laughs> the good way to go about it because I just don't want to be another person who... Um, who's basically a bullshit artist who who just uh, speaks about things that he doesn't know. So then I thought, okay, I'll throw everything <laughs> that I've written into the garbage because it's it's not how I want to present. Um, that's not how I should go, go about um, with um, writing this book. So what I did was I started writing this book from a perspective, from an outside perspective, about how people discuss cannabis and what's going on in the media space and what are people's different perspectives, opinions, and arguments surrounding cannabis. So I just sort of take a step back and I just explain everything that's going on from today's perspective about cannabis. Great. So you actually start yeah. the book with a lot of definitions. So I was hoping you could set the stage for us regarding all of the important distinctions we need to know for this discussion. All right. So um, first, first, I wanted to figure out figure out how to structure the book. I think that was like one of the hardest part of writing it because I wanted to take it like step by step and sort of lead the reader into um, like there needs to be a certain line of understanding. Um, so basically, how I decided that the book should evolve was first I wanted to explain what cannabis actually is so first i started with the terms uh, to understand um, for example with cbd thc different species of cannabis and i wrote that so that first so that the reader can understand some very basic concepts which are very reoccurring in the cannabis discourse um, then i thought to myself um, how should i then I started writing about all the different arguments, the different um, different chapters surrounding it, but I realized that the reader might not even know exactly what cannabis is. So I decided to just take the reader step by step, like from seed to consumption, what cannabis is. So first I discuss um, in part one, I discuss like what the cannabis seeds are and where you can get them. So you can get them from different seed banks. Seed banks are basically companies that sell cannabis seeds um, on different websites. Uh, for example, like um, Dutch Passion, Barney's Farm, uh, Philosopher Seeds, um, Ace Seeds. There are so many different seed banks. Uh, most of them are located in the Netherlands, especially Amsterdam, also in Spain. So you get those seeds um, from these seed banks. Then I explain exactly um, what the... Okay, so let, let's now take a step back. Before the seeds, we need to understand the different seeds um, 
create different kind of cannabis plants. So in the terms to understand, I explained that there are three main types of cannabis species. It's cannabis indica, cannabis sativa, and cannabis ruderalis. So cannabis sativa are very tall plants. It's sort of like very tall cannabis plants. They have fluffy buds that allow them to uh, respire, to breathe more easily. Uh, Also, the leaf fingers are quite narrow. So um, these uh, plants have um, evolved in the tropical areas where it's very humid and very hot. Um, Then, and they grow much differently than cannabis indica. Cannabis indica plants are quite short. They have wide leaf fingers. The buds are very dense and the plants are very protective by nature. Um, Cannabis ruderalis plants, um, that's the third species which was um, discovered around uh, 100 years ago or classified 100 years ago. Um, This plant doesn't actually cause any psychoactive effects. However, it is used to create hybrid strains, like hybrid out-of-flowering strains, which means that the plants don't need diminished, uh, um, how do you say it? They don't need the diminished uh, sun hours or hours of light in order to start flowering. Um, That's because they evolved in very cold climates where the, the light was very scarce. So those plants just um, create flowers automatically, and that's why they're called out-of-flowering strains. Um, So yeah, uh, there are three main uh, types of species, and these species are hybridized with each other. So they can create, there are thousands of different strains on the market, for example, uh, like White Widow, Amnesia Haze, Lemon skunk, super skunk, big, big bud. <laughs> there, there are so many strange names like Willy Wonka or Skywalker. Um, it, it gets really funny. But um, yeah, there are thousands of uh, different strains. And these strains can be bought in seed format from the seed banks, which I mentioned before. So, um, okay, then I'm going to discuss uh, the legality of these seeds uh, later on. Um, so first I discuss how it grows. So during the vegetation stage, um, they, the plants, um, first they, you germinate the plants, so they create like a root, then they grow, um, and they just grow leaves and stems. So it just becomes like a big uh, weed plant, basically. Um, and it takes around, it depends on the strain, it can range between four weeks and and uh, like three, four months. Um, After the vegetation stage is uh, finished, the flowering stage begins. So during this stage, the um, cannabis flowers, they develop. And um, yeah, then the actual buds grow. Buds are the product that we dry and cure to uh, put them in joints or just make various cannabis products from um yeah so after the flowering stage obviously you harvest the plant there's a lot obviously there are so many details in terms of like the vegetation stage and flowering stage i just want to set out the basics and i'll just uh, continue uh, quickly into the other parts so we have time 
um, you cure, you obviously cure the plants, and then you have the final product, which is the dried bud, uh, dried buds. Um, all right. So after you have the final product, you obviously have um, uh, you can create different products from it. So you can create um, different concentrates, which are usually solvent-based or solvent-solventless. Um, there are so many different um, types of products now, especially after the US started legalizing cannabis. Um, they are very creative in all the different products they create. So um, the most um, common concentrate is hash, and it has been used for thousands of years. Um, we also have something like rosin, and um, you can make can of butter, so you can just make butter with cannabis. You can make different oils. You can make um, the carbon dioxide um, concentrates. So it's basically you use like a supercritical use supercritical carbon dioxide to extract the desired cannabinoids from the plant. Um, there, there are a lot of different products. So after the products, um, I explain all the products or the main products on the, sorry, the main products on the market. Um, I go into the different administration routes. So you can smoke cannabis, which is not the best way of consuming cannabis because you can inhale a lot of toxins. Um, then you obviously, yeah, yeah, then you have the vaporizing of cannabis. So when you vaporize cannabis, um, the cannabis doesn't actually burn. The device, the vaporizing uh, device actually heats up the cannabis to a point where the desired cannabinoids are released from the plant. And this is a healthier way to consume in comparison with smoking. Um, another way of uh, consuming cannabis is obviously ingestion. We all know the classic space cakes and <laughs> different weed brownies that you can find in Amsterdam. Um, that's uh, also another preferred route of consumption because you, you're not getting in any uh, smoke into the lungs it's just uh, something that's uh, absorbed into the stomach um, or into your body through your digestive tract you also have uh, sublinguals so you can have tinctures which you put under the tongue and it goes straight into the blood so it's also a healthier way of consuming i guess and it's also more controlled so you can control the dose more um you can take a specific dose if you need it. It's a, probably the most uh, preferred uh, consumption route for medicinal, uh, for patients who use cannabis medicinally. And yeah, after that, basically, um, um, it goes, I, I just explained from uh, the entire route from seed to the consumption. Then I explain more of why people use cannabis in just a very short chapter. And the main uh, uses of cannabis are for spiritual use, med medical use, and recreational use. So a lot of people use it, obviously, as um, for spiritual purposes. Obviously, we know we know when people smoke, they can get very spiritual, talk about like a, the metaphysical construct <laughs> and get um, do 
love yoga there's actually a book called ganja yoga which explains which talks about how people uh, smoke cannabis and do yoga at the same time and it's a um, great practice also i uh, talk a little bit about the rastafarians you know that they use it for um, for their spiritual rituals um, then obviously for medicinal purposes uh, we hear it everywhere in the articles blogs a lot of people use it for different conditions like for uh, anxiety depression uh, for going through, like helping with symptoms um, deriving from uh, chemotherapy uh, for crohn's disease which i have which i for which i use cannabis um, medicinally then uh, obviously we have um, recreational use so recreational use i just defined it as something like smoking cannabis not for spiritual or medical use it's basically everything that's outside of that area of use so it can be just um, sitting in a park with friends smoking some weed or just watching some netflix series and smoking to get more immersed into the series once watching um so yeah those are like the three main um uses of or like why people use cannabis of course, um, I defined it myself, so it's not like I took the definition from a specific place. I just defined it to make it simpler to understand the book. And also, this is how what I believe the division is in use. Okay, so anyway, this is the first part, which uh, takes you through the, the plant itself and the consumption of cannabis. So once that's covered, um, um, now I can go into explaining the history of cannabis. So the reason I um, am talking about the history of uh, cannabis uh, prohibition is because the reason, like everything we believe in today in terms of um, the different arguments, the different um, opinions we have about cannabis derive from um, is set in a historical context. So basically I speak about um, uh, almost 200 years ago, there was a guy called William Brooke O'Shaughnessy. He traveled to India, he was knighted by Queen Victoria, who actually also, I believe she also used cannabis, but I'm not 100% sure I didn't include that in the book, but she was, uh, he was knighted by her and he was studying hemp very meticulously because he was very impressed by the qualities that cannabis comprises so he was testing the can uh, he made his own cannabis tincture um, and he he was um, conducting research uh, with a lot of people a lot of locals there in india and he discovered that it's an amazing property that can be used instead of uh, opium it can it's very good for rheumatism for gout for um for uh, convulsions and um yeah after after he's done all this research uh, he wrote in an article in 1930 no sorry in 1839 he wrote an article in medical journal explaining that hemp is just like the the best thing not the best thing but we should definitely study it further um, and based on this article um, a lot of cannabis medicines were created and um, introduced into the western medicine medical 
how they say it, medical cabinets. Yeah, um, a lot of people you start using them from toothaches, uh, for pain, for convulsions, and they used it in tincture formats. So, um, so, so it was a lot of like um, like syrups and syrups. Okay, so basically he introduced it. So now the West. Um, the Western society had already was acquainted with cannabis. It was very regular for people to use it. Um, then I explained shortly about the Indian Hemp um, Drugs Commission. There a lot of English people back in the back in the and day. Like prohibition, um, right? They sent um, people a commission to India to investigate the matter of hemp, whether it was bad for the society there. And then the conclusion of this 3,500 page, um, page um, what's it called, report, they concluded that, the, um, that hemp was absolutely, there was no problem with hemp. Uh, people didn't go crazy, you know, people were, um, people could go on with their lives. However, um, if somebody used uh, too much hemp, it could be uh, bad for them. Um, all right, so let's continue to the um, to the twentieth century. In the beginning of the twentieth century, and now I'm moving towards the U.S. The focus towards the U.S. Exactly. Yes. So this is sort of where the prohibition starts. The Harrison Narcotics Tax Act that took place in 1914, that was passed in the 1914, um, it, um, it was basically set out to uh, prohibit the use, the sales of the sales and trade of opium, uh, morphine, heroin, and cocaine. So once that was done, the medical professionals were no longer able to prescribe like um, these drugs to their patients who were addicted to these drugs. So what happened as a result of that, actually a lot of medical professionals went to prison for it and, um, and they just stopped um, getting involved in prescribing these drugs because they didn't want to lose their licenses. So what happened then is you had thousands, okay, I don't know the actual number, but you had a lot of people who were addicted to very, um, very addictive substances, and they were no longer able to get it from their doctors. So what happened then? Um, they started seeking these drugs from other sources, and that's how the black market for drugs um, started in, in the US. So... Um, Basically, people who were addicted to drugs, they needed to pay more money for these drugs, and they were no longer able to support themselves financially, so they resulted in crime. So, like, hideous crimes, like, you know, murder, you know, a lot of violence. And suddenly, the connection between drug use and crime was like, it just went hand in hand in the media. So, that's basically the beginning of the war on drugs because um, basically the um, government was just cracking down on people who, who were committing these violent uh, crimes and they're just connecting them to drugs and it was just spiraling um, out of control. So that's basically the, the starting point of how we are stigmatizing drugs today and drug users today.
Um, as a result of this, um, during 1919, alcohol was prohibited in the United States. I'm pretty sure it was 1919. I'm not. Um, I can check it later. Um, alcohol was prohibited, so the prohibition began in the U.S. So obviously, um, a lot of uh, different gangs, like we all know the story of Al Capone. Um, the, um, there was a lot of boot, bootlegging going on. In 1930, the prohibition of alcohol has ended, and then entered, um, thus entered Harry Jacob Enslinger. He was the commissioner of um, the newly established Bureau of Narcotics. So he came into, um, he started working there, and the al alcohol was already allowed, so it was uh, legal to consume uh, to sell and consume uh, alcohol. So he had a job to do. So he, he needed to shift. This is my opinion. There's a lot of people who talk about conspiracy theories. I'm not very into that. Um, I'm just, um, I just want to talk about what I know. I know that he uh, went into, um, he became the commissioner and he no longer had the, tasks or he no longer had the job to uh, incriminate alcohol uh, salesmen and users so he shifted to other drugs and the main drug was marijuana so in 19 between 1910 and 1920 there was a mexican revolution going on and a lot of mexicans escaped mexico and immigrated into the u.s and they brought with them marijuana um, which is included in one of their uh, revolutionary songs, La Cucaracha, which goes like La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha. I don't, I don't know the exact lyrics in Spanish, but um, then there is like, um, then they include the lyric of marijuana. Maybe I can find the lyrics later and sing it more properly. Anyway, <laughs> so um, yeah, so they brought with them marijuana, and what happened then was the media was. Also, the blacks were using marijuana for jazz music, or jazz musicians were using a lot of cannabis at the time. So the media was targeting um, basically the initiative of the Commission of Narcotics was to connect um, people's racist attitudes at the time um, towards um, marijuana. Yeah, I think, okay, how can I explain it better? Um, people had racist attitudes, and those racist attitudes were used against marijuana so that marijuana could become prohibited so that the commission would have a job. That's at least my opinion. Other people can have uh, other opinions, and I'm open to uh, a discussion about this. So, um, yeah, racist attitudes, that's basically what kick-started this entire campaign uh, against marijuana and it, it all sort of culminated in this movie called reefer madness it was produced in 1936 it from today's perspective this movie is really funny because it's a propaganda movie that just shows um basically rich white teenagers that start smoking marijuana and they, they go absolutely crazy like they they start driving recklessly they they, they kill each other there, there's um, a lot of like schizophrenia going on the, the main character ralph just goes crazy he kills a guy and then somebody jumps out the window it's <laughs> it's it's 
it's a really funny movie but during those times it was very scary um people saw this movie and they're like oh my god i don't want my children to be consuming this horrible drug and this movie was obviously sponsored by the bureau of narcotics because in the introduction of the in the introduction of the movie the person who he he gives like a speech against marijuana and he mentions a letter from the commission of narcotics so obviously they had a say in what was um, going on there so uh, wait i'm just going to find the part here that um, from the actual movie um, just give me a second i'm going to find it here just one second all right so the letter that he reads um, in the movie goes like this recently a huge supply of heroin was taken it was concealed in an apparently harmless shipment of 35 barrels of olive oil the deadly drug was burned in the incinerator of the bureau of engraving and printing and more vicious, more deadly even than the soul-destroying drugs is the menace of marijuana. No doubt, many of you do not believe that these things do happen, that they cannot happen to you. You may also believe that the facts have been exaggerated. Let me tell you of something that happened right here in our city. And then the movie goes into the plot of the movie. So, um, so this is just an example to show that marijuana was demonized like demonized over all drugs like it was the absolutely worst substance that one could it's basically what we consider bath salts to be today that's what they thought back in the day about um, or that's how they presented marijuana back in the day so it was very scary for people um one year later the marijuana tax act came into um so there was a hearing the marijuana tax act hearing where harry anslinger was talking about um, why cannabis needs to become illegal he presented many different letters from specialists i quote unquote specialists who were talking about um, uh, they gave inc incredibly like horrible stories about uh, cannabis i can give you a couple of um, examples here uh, for example, a case in point is that, it, wait, okay, so this was Dr. Frank Gomila. He was the Commissioner of Public Safety um, in 1937. So a letter from him was read during the hearing. A case in point is that of a young man, an intelligent high school student, now confined to an institution for the mentally deceased. His experience is entirely the result of acquiring the habit of smoking marijuana cigarettes. There was another one, another example uh, quoted by him is a young boy who had become addicted to smoking marijuana cigarettes in a fit of frenzy because, as he stated, while still under the marijuana influence, a number of people were trying to cut off his arms and legs, seized an axe and killed his father, mother, two brothers and a sister, wiping out the entire family except himself. So this was presented during the marijuana tax hearing, which is from today's perspective, it's absolutely insane. But there are so many different um, 
stories like this presented through these letters of Anslinger. I think it's very interesting also to mention that Anslinger himself didn't really present these crazy um, these crazy stories. It was through letters of others. So it's almost like he didn't want to be accountable for these stories, but still mediate their message. Um, there's also a lot of like racist indications in the in the um, in the letters that he read during the meeting, such as. I wish I could show you what a small marijuana cigarette can do to one of our degenerate Spanish-speaking residents. That's why our problem is so great. The greatest percentage of our population is composed of Spanish-speaking persons, most of who are low mentally because of social and racial conditions. So, I mean, there's, you know, it's indisputable that the racist um, attitudes were used during the hearing in order to make cannabis illegal or marijuana illegal. And here's the interesting part. Marijuana, like they changed the word um, from cannabis indica to marijuana because people were aware, generally aware of what cannabis indica was. But marijuana was like this other thing. It was like, like bath salts in comparison to cannabis. You know, it was like something um, almost like a different plant, even though it is the same plant there. Um, mentioning so okay so after all these crazy okay i have to mention another story which is really funny um they meant harry anslinger and a letter that he mentions by somebody else talks about the um, the story of marco polo right so marco polo uh, around 1000 years ago wrote a story about an old man of the mountain who uh, gave um, who gave his um, um, what's it called? Okay, there are people basically who went to this old mountain mountain, and he gave them hash like a hash drink, and then it sedated them to sleep, and then they woke up in a beautiful garden with uh, foods, drinks, beautiful women, and then they just um, they that was like paradise for them, and then they're put to sleep again and they woke up in the original place so then the old man of the mountain said if you want to um, experience this paradise again you will need to murder people for me basically and that's um, that's the story of the old man of the market uh, old man of the mountain so yeah <laughs> and the problem with this is obviously that this was a story from like 800 years ago and this wasn't like a personal account. It was a story of a story. So Marco Polo just heard it from somebody, tell him a story about it. And then it was mentioned 800 years later during a marijuana tax hearing to make cannabis illegal. It's absolutely crazy if you think about it. Um, so anyway, um, after all these um, really interesting <laughs> points of view that um, Anslinger uh, set forward, marijuana became illegal. So... Marijuana didn't technically become illegal. It's just um, you could require a marijuana tax stamp in order to grow cannabis. However, if you applied for a marijuana tax stamp, you would obviously be showing that you are growing cannabis in the first place, which would mean that you would be severely penalized, like even put into prison. So obviously it was it was just made illegal. Nobody wanted to 
have anything to do with it. Um, okay, after that, um, okay, I'm going to go. I thought this would, I would be speaking for much less, but I think this is going to take. Oh, no, no worries. Actually, because I have a follow-up question, actually, yeah. from sort of thinking about the history of marijuana prohibition yeah. in terms of your chapter six, which you call yes. how to read between the lines. So what did you mean when you said that? And can you tell us about some of those yeah. concepts that you bring up? Of course. So uh, basically, okay, so just to finish the history of um, marijuana prohibition, in 1961, the single convention of narcotic drugs um, is um, has been set forward by the UN which mo the majority of countries signed, and this is what made cannabis illegal on a worldwide scale. So it started with the US, and then the US had the power to tell basically other countries that they need to sign it. You know, they kind of had to because of the power that US had. And that's what made cannabis illegal all around the world. So that's sort of where I stop. Um, okay, so how to read between the lines. The reason I included this um, this chapter is about how to read different cannabis articles and blogs. So how um, we are being manipulated by bo both pro and con marijuana advocates um, in terms of um, um, different facts around cannabis. So um, I will structure it. I will just take it point by point. So. First, I explain the confirmation bias. So obviously when we read a lot of articles and blogs about cannabis, we will try to verify our own beliefs about cannabis. So if I think that cannabis is great for cancer, I will type in why is cannabis great for cancer? And then I'll find a website that shows why is cannabis great for cancer? I'll read it and it sort of like verifies my own beliefs. And that's called the confirmation bias. Um, so that's uh, something we need to look out for whenever reading um, yeah, articles and blogs about cannabis and also other, um, other topics. I also explained that headlines are very important because we, we are just bombarded by different articles and blogs and we are bombarded by these headlines and we sort of just read the headlines as if it's facts and we don't read the actual articles. So we base our opinions on that. And it's very important to note that these headlines are exaggerated in order for us to click on these links. So we have very extreme beliefs because of these headlines. And um, that's why I just go through. I also explain um, something that's more specific to cannabis. A lot of people, um, don't understand the difference between a treatment and a cure. So a lot of times we speak about uh, cannabis as a treatment for cancer, but it's presented as a cure for cancer. And it doesn't, there's no um, real data about, um, no real scientific um, proof that cannabis actually cures human cancer, like grown inside the body. It's, it's used as a treatment for various symptoms from chemotherapy but when you mix these things up then people may use um, cannabis to heal their cancer you know which is um, which um, is not necessarily so so it's very um, important to keep that in mind the next point is the agenda of the company that writes the articles and blogs so 
for example, if I'm trying to sell CBD oil and I'm writing an article about CBD, obviously you need to read it from the perspective of um, of that I am trying to sell this product to you. You know, so if you you're reading all these facts about CBD, that's amazing and that it cures everything. Um, you know, that that's good. For, for cancer, for Crohn's disease, but then I'm trying to sell you the product. And of course, I'm not trying to write anything bad about CBD because my financial and my fin financials depend on you buying the product. That's at least the truth for in a lot of cases. And it's the same thing for anti-cannabis websites um, like the drug-free world they just say why cannabis is horrible for you and why it's the worst drug ever. Obviously, because their website is called a drug-free world. They want a drug-free world. That's why they present it to you. Therefore, you should. Um, everybody should be very cautious of that um, and just keep that in mind whenever reading cannabis articles. The next point is uh, scientific research. So I... Um, a lot of these articles and blogs are written by people who have no idea, who are not scientists, who have not, um, don't know the exact studies that they're um, quoting, and they often take it out of context. And um, that's basically how you get all these articles that cannabis cures cancer research shows. And then you go into different, um, different links uh, that shows the research, and it's very complicated, very complex words used in this research and um, it's basically these sentences that they take are taken out of context so um, that's something to look out for um, I also um, what else so simplistic connections it's for example um, another part that I include there was if somebody says um, yeah cannabis increases the levels of dopamine dopamine in the brain dopamine is good for happiness therefore cannabis is good for happiness it's sort of like it's just connecting things very simplistically so that they make sort of logical sense it's a valid argument but it's not necessarily true because how dopamine functions in the brain is very complex like, um, and a lot of people can actually use it in the reverse and say yeah well marijuana it releases a lot of dopamine. Dope, a lot of dopamine causes schizophrenia. Therefore, marijuana causes schizophrenia. And you see this all the time in uh, cannabis articles. Um, obviously, ambiguous terms. So um, I just go through um, a lot of people use words such as allegedly, potentially. It seems like it's probably like this. Research suggests like this. Um, that cannabis is this or that and that's obviously to take away the responsibility of what one is saying so one should definitely be careful of that obviously you have um, you also have disclaimers you have counter statements it's all included in the last uh, parts of the chapter of the book so correlation versus causality this is something that is very um, presented very often in canvas articles because a lot of times we um, just say that cannabis causes um, the violence um, to drop or the crime rates to drop. However, it can be, it could be just a correlation. 
or that um, a lot of people who um, get schizophrenia, a lot of people who um, have schizophrenia, they smoke cannabis. However, it's not necessarily true that the cannabis causes schizophrenia. It might be just a correlation that people who have schizophrenia just use more cannabis. So that's the correlation versus causality uh, debate, uh, which is very prevalent in the cannabis discourse. Um, I will conclude the how to read between the lines with the statistics um, statistics part. So various graphs and um, statistics are can be tailor-made. So you can present a graph in such a way and interpret it in such a way that it can show that cannabis is very bad for you or it's very good for you um, and it's very good for our um, society or it's or for our... Um, yeah, for our country, or it's very bad for our country. So I just present an, an example um, how one statistic can be twisted in both ways uh, to present why cannabis is good or why cannabis is bad and why it should be legalized or why it shouldn't be legalized. Um, all right, so that's basically the part. I finished there with the how to read between the lines. Do you have any questions for me? in terms of those parts. Yeah, so I found that chapter to be kind of interesting just from a researcher perspective, right? A lot of things to keep in mind when you're reading research in general. So I really liked that chapter. So then you get into what you call the cannabis discourse. So here you tackle quite a few issues such as addiction, medical marijuana, and legalization. So I was hoping you could briefly talk about those. Yes, I'll, I'll keep it as brief as possible. No, no worries. <laughs> no worries. Okay, so the reason I actually called the book Cannabis Discourse and not like Cannabis Discussions or Cannabis Debates is because the word discourse, um, it sort of means like a discussion, but it feels more all-encompassing. So it sort of like encompasses, um, for example, the, the person who grows marijuana is a part of the discourse or somebody who's in prison because of uh, using cannabis is a part of the discourse. It just felt like the right word to use to describe this book and this part. So this part, um, I uh, begin with the gateway drug theory. Um, the gateway drug theory is very interesting because a lot of people think they know what it means, but when you start breaking it down, it's actually quite complicated so i just um i just explained it for a for a more simple perspective it's um a lot of people um in the media just say yes cannabis is definitely a gateway drug or cannabis is definitely not a gateway drug so who is right uh, what does the research say well the problem is that it's how um, both parties define the gateway drug. So in, technically, they're both right. It's just one uh, definition is more, I believe, is more valid than the other. And so I'll explain this shortly. There are three main uh, ways uh, how the gateway, the gateway drug theory comprises three hypotheses. And that is, um, I'll explain it here. So it's the predisposition hypothesis, um, the social environmental hypothesis and the pharmacological hypothesis. Um, the social environmental hypothesis basically takes into account the outside factors. So um, what 
is it from the outside perspective that made somebody use um, harder drugs um, uh, after using cannabis? Because there are obviously a lot of statistics that show that people that do heroin are more likely to have used cannabis before. The problem with this uh, hypothesis is that the drive, the predisposition to use drugs is not included. So the predisposition hypothesis speaks about the person's inner um, drive to escalate to drug use and escalate to harder drugs. And I explain a little bit about that and I just break it down. Then I... Then there's the pharmacological hypothesis. And here's the interesting part. If the pharmacological hypothesis is proved to be true, um, the gateway drug theory will be definitely, uh, the cannabis would definitely be a gateway drug if it's proven. And that's because the pharmacological hypothesis says that cannabis itself causes the escalation to harder drugs. It has nothing to do with the social environmental conditions or the genetical um, genetic predispositions. That's the cannabis in itself. Of course, this has not been proven. However, there are suggestions that this might be true. So whether cannabis is or is not a gateway drug, we don't know. Um, yeah, so there, there's more to this chapter. I think the, the listeners of this podcast would need to uh, just read it through and they'll understand exactly point by point what I mean by the gateway drug theory. The main point is that there's more than meets the eye. Um, then I continue to the next chapter, which is cannabis addiction. So we speak very often about, um, we talk about how cannabis is addictive um, psychologically, but it's not addictive physically. Well, I was very interested in that fact, because what, what does that really mean psychologically and physically? Because obviously the physical affects the psychological. So um, it's like saying that, you know, if somebody takes heroin, they're physically dependent, but psychological dependence is separated from that well if you have cravings and you have withdrawal symptoms obviously psychologically you will tend to navigate towards that drug to which um, one is addicted so i just break down the cannabis addiction what people uh, the main narratives um, basically cannabis addiction cannabis use disorder is a thing that has been included in a dsm-5 which is the diagnostics, um, uh, I have it here, it was the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It was included there. And um, so basically uh, the withdrawal symptoms from cannabis ha have been included, which is interesting because now nobody can say that cannabis is not physically, uh, can cause physical um, addiction or not addiction, but uh, dependence. It can. Uh, however, you, you know, it's a debate, debatable how strong this dependence is. It's, it's very, um, it's compared to coffee um, or to, basically to coffee. It's not something that is very strong in comparison with opiates or like um, even cigarettes. Okay, so th the, this chapter is very interesting from a perspective that the gambling disorder was actually included. It was moved to a substance, um, to a substance category of the, the DSM-5, which basically talk 
the reason it was moved from wait i have this part here um yeah it was moved the gambling disorder was moved to the substance related and addictive disorders part because it mimicked the um, disorder of the actual substances um so then we can ask ourselves further questions for example if gambling has is is coined like a substance disorder then what about other behaviors like jumping off airplanes or like people people who uh, have like a need for adrenaline what about people who have um, sex addiction what about there's just so many things that one can be addicted to and it sort of creates a discussion of it blends the discussion of um, it connects the discussion of uh, drugs and different behaviors and how they're not so different from each other um, so that's where I conclude the chapter just something to think about then I go through well, I'm just going to take a sip of my coffee okay adolescent um, cannabis use so obviously nobody wants teenagers to smoke weed and this is true for both pro uh, legalization advocates and anti-legalization advocates um, studies have shown um, there's a new zealand study that have shown that uh, people or teenagers that smoke a lot of cannabis um, their iq can drop up to eight points which is a lot um, however they would need to smoke a lot of cannabis in order for this iq to drop but again, nobody uh, wants um, teenagers to be using cannabis. Of course, it's uh, dangerous for the de developing brain. At least that's the consensus. I'm not a scientist. I'm just saying what's uh, present in the discourse. So, um, so yeah, I go through just uh, two different, um, two main ways of um, countering or like um, lowering the teenage use of drugs or teenage use of cannabis, and that is um, the harm reduction route and the deterrence route. So the deterrence route is the classic prohibition, like don't do this, uh, you will, um, you know, if you smoke cannabis, soon you'll be smoking crack and you'll die and uh, it, it's terrible for you. And this has been perpetuated with um, campaigns such as the DARE campaign and the Just Say No campaign, um, created by Nancy Reagan um, and the other way which is more progressive which is uh, coming to the surface now is the harm reduction uh, harm reduction perspective on how to reduce cannabis use and that is to just educate young people exactly what cannabis is what drugs are in general not lie to them just tell them that we care very much and that we don't want them to use these drugs however if they use them if they decide to use them then they need to take certain then they need to understand what they're doing and that's the main way but that's the main difference between the deterrence and the the more harm reduction um way of approaching um lowering the uh, drug use by teenagers it's the fact that the, the deterrence route, um, it tells teenagers that they have to stay away from drugs. But once they 
say if you say no to a teenager, then suddenly if they want to take drugs and they take drugs, well, then there's nothing more to say because they're not supposed to take the drug in the first place. But if you take the harm reduction route, it's more um, understanding the reality of teenagers that if we don't want them to take drugs, but if they decide to take drugs, which is very likely, you know, in considering in, in the consumption rates of the drugs today, then they need to take certain st- steps to be safe. For example, don't drive while drinking. Or like if you take MDMA, understand that the dosage of MDMA is crucial. Um, you, you may overdose from it if you take this and this amount. You know, just educating um, basically teenagers about it. And there's a whole debate of whether it's good or bad. So I just presented both these perspectives in this chapter. Um Moving on to medical marijuana. So this is an enormous part. Um, It is um, obviously today in the US, almost the majority of states have legalized the medicinal use of marijuana. In Canada, um, Canada has legalized the medicinal and recreational use of marijuana. But anyway, the uh, medical use has been... um, uh, the medical use of um, cannabis is uh, very prevalent because it cannabis can be used for many different um, uh, symptoms and many different conditions like the cancer, schizophrenia, anxiety, PTSD. And I just go through epilepsy as well. And I just break down the conversations that we have in the media in terms of the um, five most prevalent um, um, medical conditions which are connected with cannabis, such as uh, which are uh, basically cancer, PTSD, epilepsy, um, anxiety, and depression. Um, since uh, cannabis has shown, or cannabis is presented in the media, that it can uh, be replaced many. Uh, medicines which are used for these conditions which are very prevalent uh, in the world um, it's a very big deal Um, also cannabis is a big deal from a medical perspective because in 1992 we have discovered the endocannabinoid system in our bodies and in our body uh, and that's a whole chemical signaling system which is um, sort of like affected and kick-started by um, cannabinoids which are present in cannabis we produce internally endocannabinoids however cannabis has cannabinoids which mimic uh, endocannabinoids in our bodies which means that it can function as a medicine uh, whenever our endocannabinoid levels are low or dysfunctional in some way Therefore, it, that's why cannabis is really a huge deal from the medical perspective. Um, moving on, the chapter about cannabis legalization. So I just go through um, the fact that in different parts of the world, um, you have different scheduling systems. Um, it is more in the United Arab Emirates. If you smoke a joint, you could go to prison. You could even get a death sentence if you traffic drugs to there or from there. Um, whilst in Uruguay, you can smoke weed and nobody cares. It's legal in the country. Um, well, under certain circumstances, but basically virtually legal. I also I want to write this chapter because 
a lot of people just put black or white, whether it's legal or it's illegal in a country to consume cannabis. Well, there are many different components to uh, legalization of cannabis, which is the cultivation, transportation, uh, sales, and consumption. So, um, for example, in Amsterdam, you can you're allowed to sell cannabis, but the cultivation is not even regulated, so it's not uh, legal to grow cannabis but it's legal to sell it, which is quite weird because, you know, like how do you grow it and then transport it to the coffee shops in a legal manner? And for example, in the US, there's a more, um, it's the states that have legalized cannabis, have legalized the uh, cultivation, transportation, and the sales of it, but federally it's illegal. So it's technically illegal to do so but the states have legalized it so it's sort of like um i just give uh, different examples of uh, the differences in those different um in these different aspects of cannabis legalization um what is the next chapter let's see marijuana sorry yeah you were going to say no, yeah. So I was just hoping here, um, it's your conclusion chapter. So I was hoping you could just sort of give us the big takeaways that um, you had after doing all this work. Okay, um, perfect. So actually, I um, um, the conclusion. So basically, I'll tell you a short story. Like when I was writing this book, it was just like my entire life went into this book. Like the the one year of my life just went into doing all the research, um, making sure that all the chapters are um, correctly written, that everything makes sense from beginning to end. So it was like it was quite a journey just to finish this book. And once I finished it, I realized that um, there's just so many different perspectives um, of cannabis um, use um, I just start understanding basically you know why people don't want cannabis to be legalized why people want it to be legalized I just understood a more um, I sort of like elevated myself above the cannabis discourse in some way it's almost like spiritual way of writing this book I just like sort of viewed everybody um, in the world that was discussing it and uh, uh, yeah it just I gained a lot of perspective from writing this book um, so the conclusion of the book is this I still I still want cannabis to be legalized and uh, regulated um, I still believe in this so I didn't want to present this point during throughout the book but this is just i just shortly mentioned that this is what i believe should be done i don't know exactly how it should be legalized how it should be regulated but i know that that's the right thing that's the right step to move forward um okay so i conclude the conclusion of the book was a little bit cheap in a way because because like there are so many things to conclude that i just wanted to just say one thing just something that could conclude the book uh, perfectly and that conclusion is just the context the context that therefore this book is called facts and opinions in context the context of uh, cannabis use and drug use for example we can smoke cannabis which is less dangerous than alcohol but um, and we have all the stigma surrounding the consumption of cannabis but when we when it comes down to 
drinking alcohol and drinking a lot of alcohol at different parties or even weddings, you know, then that's not even, that's not stigmatized. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just saying that it's a different context. If, um, for example, um, if heroin was um, clean and if it was legalized and if the dosage was controlled, um, would it you know, like there's an entire context of how even opiates are used that um, we we have stories surrounding drug use and these stories do not need to be true. We perpetuate these stories by holding on to them without um, sort of questioning their reality. So, um, so for example... Um, like with drinking, you know, we, we have just accepted this entire culture of drinking, but culture of smoking marijuana, which causes much less violence, <laughs> you know, if you go to bars or coffee shops, you'll see this. Um, it, it's just context. And that's what I'm leaving the book with, just so people understand that the context of drugs are very, are constructed. And this is something that can be reconstructed. So that's, I think, the conclusion. Yeah, so today we've been talking with Jacob Levine, author of Cannabis Discourse, Facts and Opinions in Context. Thanks so much for being with us today, Jacob. Thank you very much. It was a very good podcast. I liked it very much. Thank you very much.